0: Do you think if the provincial government said You should boo Doug Ford people would do it Or would it be like a reverse psychology thing Because they should try that
1: <laughs> That would get his polls up
0: Yeah everybody's like hey come on Leave him alone yeah. if, if his own party started shitting on him
1: His party should come out and say Don't vote for Doug Ford in the upcoming election And yeah. that way he wins
0: well, I mean I feel like he'll win anyways <laughs>
1: <laughs> Yeah we live in fucking clown world Yeah it's hell We live in hell
0: again everyone welcome to another edition of the late late capitalism show the first of our summer arc the true boys rock dudes rock not quite a white boy summer that's accurate for 50 percent of our (laughs) cast today but it is the jesse and chance era and we are very excited to get things rolling as megan and dean traverse across the country in their little van doing who knows what
1: yeah, the adults are gone, so it's time to party.
0: That's right. Megan can't cut me off or remove th- things like when I say <laughs> and, of course, <laughs> from the I show. Felt,
1: I felt really bad because um, last week I actually did have to bleep something.
0: Uh-oh.
1: Um, and I was like, I hope people don't think it's an actual, like, racial story. Yeah,
0: no. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All you said was F- I'll bleep this one out, too. But like, Yeah,
0: no, that's fine. For the record, when I when I use those harsh words, it's uh in the context of the character because I believe wholeheartedly most cops, even the gay ones, will still drop the f bomb
1: with impunity because that's the culture. Oh, one hundred percent. Oh my god, (laughs) I feel like it happens all the time. Especially for some reason, cops just get unhinged when they're dealing with teenagers.
0: Yeah, right.
1: Have you noticed that?
0: Well, I mean, fuck, we saw it just very recently, what, like, two or three months ago with that poor young man in Barry who just got fucking brutalized by that cop.
1: Yeah. Yeah, on the longboard, right? Do you think it's
0: either some kind of, like, (laughs) parenting rage or if it's, like, a much deeper-seated thing where it's, like, it reminds them of being back in high school where they either were the bullies, knowing most cops, or were bullied, knowing the new era of cops.
1: Do you think it's like, yeah, maybe it's a revenge thing? Like, they see someone doing cool shit, like breaking the law? Yeah. And like, I gotta I gotta take this guy down a peg because he's cooler than me, and he's gonna get all the teenage girls.
0: That, I mean, yeah, especially the teenage girl thing. I feel like that's yeah. a priority for most cops. But, like, <laughs> yeah, why else do you
1: become a cop? You can
0: tell yourself it's to keep the community safer. But, look, as someone who has... Literally the smallest modicum of power When I work in a bar as a bouncer I would be lying to you if I said there weren't times And you just want to like grab somebody by the scruff And be like get the fuck out of here Oh
1: 100%, it's a 100% I used to uh, <laughs> I used to pour drinks on people Yeah, Absolutely and- They would have their drink in their hand and they'd be fucking around So I would just like squeeze <laughs> it in their hand Until yeah, it spilled all over them
0: Oh absolutely If somebody, ref- If I'm like hey you're cut off and they refuse to give me their drink I will just take the palm of my hand and smack it into the bottom of their drink every yeah, time. Exactly. 100%. So I think I, that's that's what it is with cops is it's an easy target. And, yeah, it could be, like, a deep-seated Freudian thing as well.
1: Yeah, the only difference is, like, our weapon of choice is the drink that someone has, whereas their weapon of choice is, like, a gun.
0: <laughs> yeah, the Hammer of Dawn from fucking Gears
1: of War. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, they, they have a bit more in their arsenal than, uh, than a couple of bouncers do.
0: I can tell you, our bar's security budget is, like, $200 a night. We're not making <laughs> $43 million a year.
1: But, yeah, I seriously think they're just... You know, again, breaking the law, very cool thing to do. So they see teenagers doing that and they feel like um, it's one of those. I think it's like one of those kinship mating things that animals do where they see someone as a threat to their to their <laughs> possible mates. And we right. know he's peacocking. Yeah, we know the police love teen girls. So mm-hmm. they're like, oh, I have to take out this possible mate for my for my opportunities.
0: No, you see, cops watch jailbait videos undercover so they can try and pinpoint the location of the young girl to save her yeah so yeah, yeah. I, I would like to challenge your contention that all cops are pedophiles or as they would say aoebophiles <laughs> it's actually for research purposes that's why they have so many cops chomping at the bit to enter like the pedophile chat rooms <laughs> so they can play yeah. their, their greatest fantasy of being 15 again it's
1: like I'm no'm I'm, I'm not a pedophile why would you call me that? Also, if I was, it is Pride Month, so you might you want know. <laughs> to.
0: That's true. We're, we're uh, adding them to the uh, LGBTIQSM BDSM3 <laughs> list.
1: And we're adding C for cops. We're actually. Yeah. We're, you we're can't ban e, us from Pride. We're putting PC at the beginning for pedophile cops.
0: <laughs> <laughs> PC LGBTQI2S. Yeah. Uh, I think it's also like. A lot of the cops nowadays grew up playing Tony Hawk's Pro Skater PlayStation. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And do you remember? I think it was either one or two where one of the hidden characters was like the mall cop. And they're just angry that they could never pull off the 900 like the mall cop in that game. So when they see a teenager (laughs) on a skateboard or a longboard, it's on site. Their eyes go red. It's time to kill.
1: Yeah, and they're also mad that Tony Hawk is like their age, but also still cool. Tony Hawk is
0: the coolest old person alive it's like him 100% David Lynch who is yeah you know unimpeachable wonderful man
1: yeah and he's still doing his daily weather report very cool (laughs) that's awesome
0: what's his deal?
1: Yeah, I don't know, man. He's awesome. Like, a, what was it, a couple years ago to promote a movie he was doing, he just had a cow that had the name yes. of the movie it on was, the side of it? It was
0: also, I think, for Laura Dern to get an Oscar nomination, because he had a yeah, song. Yeah, yeah,
1: it wasn't even for the movie.
0: It was just Laura Dern, who he loves, because everyone should.
1: Yes, yeah, well, she's she's fantastic. But yeah, no, I, I think I think these cops, right, they see Tony Hawk in his prime, Still absolutely killing it and being cool, and like teaching young girls to go down like a, a half pipe that's like a hundred feet tall and shit like that. And they're like, I wish I could do that with anybody, uh, especially my child. So then they just lash out on skaters.
0: They try to they're get like behind it- them and like hold their hips. It's like when you teach someone to golf, but they're on the board with them and the wheels just grind <laughs> yeah. into the earth. Yeah, yeah. Can't support the way to the golf. <laughs>
1: Yeah, man. fucking, uh, it, it's. I, I'm pretty sure that's what it comes down to. Is there like, if I wipe out all of these really cool people, maybe people will think I'm cool.
0: I, I think you're on to something there. It's a
1: survival tactic. <laughs> uh,
0: trying to avoid giving us too much whiplash, but Chance, you mentioned something beforehand that you'd like to uh, discuss now related to a current event.
1: 100%. This is, uh, again, not as uh, not as... Funny or casual? This is definitely a, a more serious matter, um, with what happened in London this past week. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to the details, I'm kind of out of the loop because I've been.
0: I've got a we, little ha- bit of
1: them. Yeah, we haven't we haven't mentioned it on this podcast, and that's just because it is a sensitive topic. But also, like what's happening with uh, cam loops and the mm-hmm. residential schools has been taking up a lot of my emotional headspace mm-hmm. so when it comes to current events um I'm, I'm i'm kind of behind but one thing i do know is that i believe they they deemed it an intentional killing yeah of uh four muslim people in london ontario uh yeah. so with a vehicle
0: what we know currently is the name of the person in custody it's I don't have it off the top of my head. I think it's like Nathaniel something, but he's a twenty-year-old white man. Uh, they said immediately that it appeared to be a racially and religiously motivated attack when he struck them with his truck. I believe it was Sunday night. He fled the scene. Uh, he was apprehended, I think, five or six kilometers away, and apparently was in like a combat vest. So Jesus it, Christ, that's the thing. And I, I, if I had to speculate, the mm-hmm reason why they classified it as a motivated attack was yes one in part because the family was a muslim family and it sounds like a fairly prominent one in the community with uh the father holding a role as a physiotherapist and the mother i believe was going for her doctorate and two Mm. the fact that he was clad in you know this like tactical vest it's not yeah hard to put two
1: and two together that doesn't sound like somebody who was just out and about And since Um,
0: then, they've said that he had no prior ties to any kind of affiliated, you know, white supremacist hate group, which might actually make things worse because he's just striking out on his own then.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, But one of the things that happened was and and we were talking it before we started recording here is um, there was a vigil held, which was um, that was in London. And, yeah. I, and there's some there's some uh, beautiful images of, of the community coming together and helping each other out. Um, I also saw this really great photo. There was a, a man who owns an ice cream truck in the area, and he showed up and gave out free ice cream to everybody. And he right. said, like, f- you know, from our Muslim family to yours mm-hmm. and was just like handing out ice cream to make everyone feel better. And that was great. <clears throat> but there was one thing that that really stuck out. um, at the vigil. And that was a a surprise speech by different members of the Canadian government. Yeah. Including London for this. Yeah. Yeah. Including our, our favorite, uh, Doug Ford, as well as Aaron O'Toole. Jagmeet (sighs) Singh was there. Um, I think you said Andrea Horwath was there
0: Yeah, Andrea uh Stephen DeLuca Who mm-hmm. you may not have never heard of But he is the leader of the Ontario Provincial Liberals And as my friend described him He is the least charismatic man alive uh, Oh yeah, he's
1: a nothing man
0: I I could not believe what I was looking at He looked like a larger version of the dean from Community Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he kind of sounded like him But without any of the charisma or charm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Aaron O'Toole was We're going to talk about Doug Ford in a moment But I want to say Aaron O'Toole was the one that actually Was the most galling to me Because he's the one who voted against You know all these ordinances to acknowledge You know Islamophobia in Canada And to kind of try and tamp down <laughs> This rising yeah. tide of white supremacy
1: So I, I I looked into that And and that was in 2017 mm-hmm. um, And there was a bill That was proposed that was you know To make it so that I'm not sure of the specifics, but it was so that Islamophobia could be recognized as like that's a, a hate
0: crime. M105, I think.
1: Yeah, it, it was. It was to specifically like name the act as a hate crime, so that um, the purpose of it was to make it so there wasn't as much ambiguity when it comes to this, and because this has happened many times in recent memory. Um, and uh, you know, post 911, Islamophobia has been on the rise.
0: Oh my god, no kidding!
1: And um, we're even seeing a resurgence of that, uh, especially after things like the the was it called the Muslim ban in the U.S.? Yeah, so was there, was, the there was the Arab ban the
0: travel ban was the catch all yeah. term for it, but even. Uh, prior to 2017, I mean, Stephen Harper in 2015 very famously ran on a campaign where he encouraged Canadians to call a tip line to report cultural culturally barbaric practices.
1: Yes, 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 yes. One so, of
0: the most monstrous pieces of fucking political advertising and gaming I've ever seen in this country.
1: Yeah, it's, you know, it's just it in itself is barbaric. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and and this was getting popular and gaining popularity. So in 2017, people wanted to strike it down and be like, you know, very specifically state that doing these things in particular against um, people of the Islam and, and uh, Muslim faith um, like that is it would become like a protected group, essentially. Right. And so when this bill was brought up. Every conservative member, as well as the Bloc Quebecois, member of parliament, voted against it, stopping the bill in its tracks.
0: 91 uh, people voting against it. Let's also remember that this bill was uh, tabled in March of 2017. The Quebec City mosque shooting was January 29th,
1: 2017. Yes. Yeah, yeah.
0: So they saw all of this and in response said, no, we still don't really think this is a big deal.
1: Mm-hmm. So as you can imagine, people seeing members of the conservative party at this video <sighs> um, might have left a sour taste in their mouth uh, because of of their history, as well as, like, as you were saying before, f- whole campaigns based on anti-immigration practices regarding Muslims.
0: And let's remember that a lot of the conservative leadership, we covered their race, you know, last year, and pretty much all of them ran on that same you know, anti-immigration, shut Canada's borders, uh, control the immigration numbers. So it's not like this mm-hmm. is even a thing of the past. Like They all explicitly ran on the same campaign of, for lack of a better term, brown-baiting,
1: you know? In Quebec, um, it was much more explicit because in a lot of their parliamentary meetings, they talk about secularism, mm-hmm. and it seems to always come up that it's mostly... It's not secular against or rather the separation of like the Christian faith and state. It is almost always has to do with things like head scarves, turbans and burkas, um, pretty much anything to do with uh, Muslim clothing. Yeah, it's very uh, was always brought up, and it, it was like the number one topic, right? So like they have a long history of this too, and like I said, it was a little more explicit. the The conservatives also have a very explicit history of it, but they were more careful with their dog whistles. I think they were just more prepared, and it was more just appealing to people's internal fears when it comes to um, things like they would they would essentially say that. There could be another 9-11 in Canada or that, you know, people are getting um, white people specifically are being erased by, you know, immigrants coming in. Yeah. And when they say immigrants coming in. Yeah. When they say immigrants coming in, they see they mean like visible minorities. Brown people. Yeah, exactly. And it's Um, interesting
0: you mentioned the Great Replacement because that was one of the big things Alexandre Bissonnette talked about before he went into you know that mosque and gunned down six innocent people worshipping. Yeah, so, to affiliate with anything even remotely similar or connected to that idea, and then to go to this fucking rally, yeah. Jesus
1: Christ! Yeah, yeah, it's it's um one of those uh, it's another instance of just being so incredibly, um, the the lack of self awareness, right? Hmm. Especially someone like Doug Ford, who I sent oh. you a picture earlier. Yeah, who, you know, he was hanging out with Faith Goldie, the like who's a known like alt-right, like white nationalist who wrote for, you know, uh, articles for Rebel News and, and stuff like that. Um, I think she was actually too extreme for Rebel News. I yeah, think they no. fired her.
0: They disavowed her, essentially.
1: Yeah, they were like, oh, you're a little much. And I, I think that's because Ezra Klein is Jewish and she was anti-Semitic. Yeah. Um, But yeah so like Doug Ford Is known to run around with people That are very explicitly anti-Muslim And then he goes to a vigil Where there was an attack on a Muslim family That resulted in, 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 in A catastrophic outcome And he shows up and he's like Oh I'm really sorry that this happened And I feel really bad And it's like I imagine you do But also take a look at who you hang out with And have hung out with forever This isn't like an ignorant thing this is something we've known about for a very long time. This isn't new. You know what I mean? This isn't like, oh, back in the day, I I had no idea that it would be bad to say that Muslims are taking over our families. Right. It's like, a, that's something that people have known forever is a horrible, horrible thing to say. Yet he has done it consistently and, and hangs out with people that push that type of propaganda so then he shows up and he tries to say that you know he feels bad for what happened and people immediately booed him it was great as they should (laughs) yeah 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 and 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 they booed a lot Mm -hmm. now i don't know if you've seen this jesse but there was a lot of discourse around this saying that it would be it it's rude
0: oh yeah i i have you see that And that was something that I expected to enter the discourse, where people always saying, oh, this isn't the time or place to bring politics into it. I'm sorry. Dicks. Yeah, but this is, A, a political stunt, very clearly. That's why any of the leaders are there. I'm sorry. That's just how it is. There should be a different time and a place where you can express your condolences, but I don't think it's appropriate to do so with that vigil anyways.
1: Yeah. Don't bring politics into, uh, it's, like, it's insane that people, I, I saw that a ton too. And it's like, don't, this isn't the time and place for politics. There was political leaders there. Yeah. And that's, they brought it.
0: And you know what? At the end of the day, it is up to the family though. And if they say, you know what? That's fine. We're, we're happy with you being here then I'm not going to, you know, criticize that decision. But at that, if that's the point and that's what they want to do, then, yeah, the people present should express themselves. Because guess what? It's a lot of Muslim people. They're friends and family members, the people that were murdered by this guy. And to expect them to behave, quote-unquote, civilly is insulting. You have yeah. the two representatives of the party that has done more to spread hate and allow, or, and legislate against your faith, your religion, and your creed, of course you're going to boo them. They don't care. They're there, so they don't get criticized for not being there.
1: Yeah, like, imagine going to a funeral and someone tells you that your grieving is inappropriate. Yeah, fuck. Like, you, you would never do that. Imagine you know what I mean?
0: going to a funeral for your grandfather who died of like lung cancer, yeah. and at the funeral they have a uh, representative from fucking <laughs> Camel to provide yeah, a speech. Yeah. It's like, of course I'm going to boo them. They fucking willingly sold cigarettes that killed him.
1: Yeah, and for someone to come up to you and be like, hey, just so you know, that was a bit inappropriate yeah. back there.
0: Be respectful of Moloch when he's speaking. <laughs> like, that's insanity. Doug Ford also delivered the shittiest speech of the weekend. It was fucking trash. (laughs) You can barely string words together.
1: (laughs) Yeah, like it was, it's, like I said, it's it's insanity to expect people to behave in the way that you want them to behave in a grieving, uh, during a grieving time. You know, like, you would never do that with anybody. So I think it's like, first of all, it's incredibly dismissive. And second of all, it comes back to something that we've talked about a ton on this show, which is that a lot of people do think that optics are the most important part oh God, of anything yeah. to do with politics. Jesus Christ. Yeah, like you're right. Like, Doesn't this look bad?
0: It's just that's so depressing. <laughs> Especially yeah, like, when you have a very real and very obvious human toll. Mm-hmm like i'm sorry the most important part of that vigil shouldn't be whether or not doug ford is there it's the fucking fact that a family was murdered
1: yeah and it also shouldn't be the the you know whether the the people that are there look bad yeah like you would never like that that's insane to me again it's like going to a funeral and being like hey whatever you're doing you're 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 sobbing too much right now so like that that looks like shit come on you
0: tone it down a bit you look really ugly when you cry
1: yeah 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 exactly like you would uh, it's it's mind-boggling to me and it comes down to the fact that it's just a logical criticism right Mm -hmm. like there's no rhyme or reason to it it's just something to dismiss the people that were there yeah And I don't know if people are doing it on purpose. I don't know if people are doing it with malicious intent. I know people are, but I'm just saying the majority of people with these criticisms, I'm not sure. Um, But what I do know is that is what comes across, is that you are being dismissive of people and that, again, you're worried more about how people look than how people feel.
0: I think a lot of the people that are... Participating in the civility discourse Are doing so because they've been conditioned To think that Civility is the key to making politics
1: Work Oh yeah it was the same thing that happened In the US when people were like I can't wait To get back to normal when like Trump was uh, You know during the election of uh, You know the election campaigns Everyone's like return to Normalcy Yeah, I feel like it's those same people
0: yeah, we don't have to think about politics. I can go to brunch.
1: Yeah, 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 exactly. And um, I think those are the same people that are worried about you know the optics of a, of people mm-hmm. booing a fucking horrible human being. Are you kidding me? Yeah,
0: the optical, the civility, fucking things to do. Like that shit is just designed to keep you know lower class and lower socioeconomic voices out of the political discourse. Because guess what? A lot of people that have real stakes in the fucking game aren't going to take the time to be civil because they're furious because they're fighting for their fucking
1: lives. And and the funny part too is I, I imagine some of these people are uh, the people that would be like, if their kid comes home crying from school, they'd be like, your, your emotions are valid. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know, people booing at a, a vigil because they're so incredibly upset with somebody and their behavior and their history of uh, regarding the, exact topic that the vigil is about um you know that those feelings aren't valid though because it's too out of the normal that stuff is meant for like to keep at home yeah don't ever express yourself
0: it's also you have to realize uh white people are allowed
1: to grieve as they see fit but because that's uh, cool
0: (laughs) that's right we invented grieving
1: yeah yeah nobody else is allowed to mourn nobody Nobody. else is allowed to be upset
0: (laughs) no other type of person Died before a white person because Jesus was the first person to die famously. That's the whole thing about the Bible, yeah. and he was definitely yeah.
1: white. So, I think that what is that Genesis one?
0: Oh yeah, Jesus was, that the was the a first great to die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Jesus, first person to ever die, uh, white. So therefore, white people <laughs> now get to police the grieving discourse. I think that's it. I think that's all.
1: <laughs> yeah, hey, you know, there's 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 different books on this. Uh, I think. Judith Butler has one about how, like, public mourning works, uh, especially in a post-9-11 world and, like, how people kind of sway the narrative of mourning, Um, you know, with 9-11 with the idea of, like, you know, we have to, every year you do, like, a moment of silence when it comes to 9-11 and so on and so forth. Yet something like this, since it's not, like, state-sanctioned, that's bad. right. Since the state didn't say, hey, time to boo Doug Ford. You know, that's a bad thing. But, like, when the state says to do it, then it's okay. Like, that's not over the top. That's that's normal behavior.
0: Do you think if the provincial government said you should boo Doug Ford, people would do it? Or would it be like a reverse psychology thing? Because they should try that.
1: <laughs> that would get his polls up.
0: Yeah. Everybody's like, hey, come on. Leave him alone. Yeah. If, if his own party started
1: shitting on him. His party should come out and say, don't vote for Doug Ford in the upcoming election. And that way he wins.
0: I mean, I feel like he'll win anyways.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we live in fucking clown world.
0: Yeah, it's hell. We live in hell.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, But yeah, that's pretty much all I had to say on that topic. I just wanted to get that out there, that people should leave people alone when they're in this horribly frustrating and upsetting time. Mm
0: -hmm. No, I think... uh Well, thank you for bringing that up, because it's just an unbelievable tragedy. And I I think I I just I don't know where we go from here. I'm glad in a sense that people seem to be taking this more seriously, certainly uh, more seriously than they did after the aforementioned mosque shooting, maybe because it happened in Ontario or maybe because it happened where even though it was religiously motivated, it is devoid of a place of worship. Mm hmm. I guess it could be the fact they were just walking down the street and most people can relate to that, whereas I don't think most people can relate to being in a mosque or... Sure, yeah. Whatever the reason, I am... Yeah, this is
1: just being targeted in public. Yeah, I'm at least glad... It's it's horrible. Something is
0: starting to change. Mm -hmm. Uh, Solidarity, obviously, to all of our uh, Muslim friends who are listening to this. Uh, We can't imagine the kind of grief and anxiety you're feeling right now. Uh, we wish we could do more, but unfortunately that's the world we live in. But hopefully just know
1: that too, this, uh, our show is on your side.
0: Absolutely. Unequivocally. And although Dean and Megan aren't here, we're very comfortable saying that they have the exact same, uh, opinion on this matter. And hopefully, uh, what we're going to talk about next can bring you a little bit of joy. I think in the description we'll maybe put some timestamps so that if you're listening to this and you don't want to either be re-traumatized or go through this mm-hmm. grief process, we can definitely mark that. This yeah, I can a, do that. This That's is a not a problem. right now. Okay. I think it's time for us to move on to the other major subject of today, and one that is not quite as fraught as discussing what just occurred in London. Uh, still going to be a little bit of darkness in there, and we forgot to do it at the top, stop, top of the show. We'll edit another one in, uh, but content warning, obviously, both in terms oh, yes. of swearing. Uh, we talked about the racially motivated violence in London, and believe it or not, the next story I'm going to tell you also has a content warning related to sexual assault. It's not the okay. sole uh, base of the story, but it's a pretty big part of it. So, let's get into it. I will fully disclose that I started researching this topic about a week and a half ago, which is when the Toronto Maple Leafs had experienced their most recent, and certainly in the opinion of many, most catastrophic collapse. Chance, do you know much about the Toronto Maple Leafs or hockey in general?
1: So, I grew up as um, a hockey kid after I was a lacrosse kid. Mm -hmm. Um... I think I was like 10 when I... No, I was like 8 when I started playing hockey. And I played it up until I was about 15. My favorite team was the Toronto Maple Leafs. But that's because because everyone's favorite team is the Toronto Maple Leafs. If you have like a family member who likes them.
0: They're the default Ontario hockey team, no doubt. 100%
1: 100% so like I had a cousin who was really into them and seeing that made me really into them and then every year I was incredibly disappointed that being <laughs> said um, I haven't followed hockey since I was 15 so I'll, I'll probably know some of the names that you bring up but like otherwise I, anything recent is just see well, watched over
0: interesting is we're not really going to be focusing on the recent too too much with this story uh, mostly just talking about how the most <laughs> recent iteration of the team uh, they were viewed as being the best they've had in Something like 25 years Certainly mm-hmm. better than any team you would have watched Growing up They were heavy favorites to win their division And then be one of the semifinalists for the Stanley Cup They played the lower-seeded Montreal Canadiens in the first round First time those two teams have played in the playoffs In over 40 years They had a 3-1 series lead They were on the brink of clinching it They looked like the best team in the world They were killing Montreal mm-hmm. They lose game 5 In overtime. Then they lose Game 6. In overtime. And then in Game 7, they put forward what is probably one of the most pathetic games of hockey I've ever seen. And they lose (laughs) 3-1. No. (laughs) They get booted from the playoffs. And usually when Toronto loses, there's a lot of, like, laughter. Of course, you have Leafs haters, which is fine. I'm an Ottawa fan, so I don't have much in the way of sympathy for Toronto most of the time. But even their most vocal critics were like, what the fuck is going on? Like it wasn't so much anger but like confusion of how did you fuck this up? And I've never seen that with this team. And the discourse shifted from just them fucking up to like okay, is there some kind of curse with this team? Like <laughs> are they haunted?
1: Yeah. <laughs> um and I have a yeah. couple of
0: theories on it which uh I'm going to walk you through.
1: Oh fuck, I love I love haunted shit. So I love this, I love cursed shit.
0: This is one where there is one very famous curse or hex that's associated with this team that people cite, one that I can disprove that no longer exists, and then there's one that is much more buried in the sands of history. This one was a lot harder to find, but I'm very excited to walk you through it because I think it is fascinating. And then I also have a third theory as to why the Toronto Maple Leafs are the way that they are. Oh, yes, let's hear it. So let's start with uh, the first option. And this was one that was confirmed to be a hex. This was confirmed as a sports curse by (laughs) all parties involved, which is amazing. Have they they ever
1: confirmed a hex before? Has that happened in history?
0: So let me tell you about something known as the Hillman Hex.
1: Holy shit. That sounds official.
0: It does. Larry Hillman was a journeyman defenseman who played for 15 total teams in his 22 year NHL career playing through the 1940s. Oh, sorry. The early fifties until like the mid seventies. Uh, he actually played a role on Toronto during the peak of their hockey power. So this is in the 1960s where they won four Stanley cups in about a 10 year period, which is incredible. Mind you, (laughs) Mm -hmm. a lot fewer teams back then, but still very impressive. Uh, Following their Stanley Cup victory in 1967, which uh, you may or may not be aware of is the last one they ever won, Larry Hillman would ask the franchise for a small raise of about $5,000 to bring his annual salary to around $20,000. Pretty reasonable request for a guy who played on four Stanley Cup winning teams and played a pretty important role.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
0: The Toronto coach at the time is the wonderfully named Punch Imlac. Oh, my
1: God. (laughs) That's his name. What a fucking sick name. (laughs) I know, right? That's so cool. Man.
0: And Punch Imlac is like a Don Cherry type, so he refused to give Hillman more than $19,500, which, you know, that's not a bad figure, but Hillman, to his credit, was like, no, here's the deal. I want what Ah. I want.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's sick. Negotiate that.
0: After about a month of a player holdout, he did eventually agree to accept Punch Imlac's offer, but was fined $100 for each day of his holdout, which was a total of $2,400. So they said, yeah, we'll give you the $19,500 salary, and they took $2,400 off, so he was getting paid essentially the same that he was before the holdout. Okay. Not ideal. So Hillman would leave the organization in 1968. Uh, He got drafted by the expansion Minnesota North Stars, and he vowed the Leafs would not win a Stanley Cup until he was repaid his $2,400 with interest. This was 1968. Uh, Oh, so it hasn't been paid? (laughs) Well, that's the thing. Up until 2017, so for 50 years... This was seen as being the reason why Toronto was so snake bitten, And during this time, Toronto experienced, as we're going to cover in just a few moments, some of the worst runs in their franchise's history. They made the conference final a few times, but they would usually lose, and lose in humiliating and heartbreaking fashion. 1992-93, uh, they got Doug Gilmore. They lost in seven games to the LA Kings after a very infamous uh, no-call high stick. They've pretty much found every way to lose that you could imagine, including blowing multiple series to Boston in strictly unbelievable fashion. (laughs) So in 2017, uh, team president Brendan Shanahan, a former NHL player himself, decided to officially end the Hex by paying Larry Hillman the $2,400 he was owed plus interest. Okay, all right. When Hillman received the money, he did like a little hand gesture and said, The team is no longer cursed. Whoa. (laughs) That's so cool. (laughs) And to be fair, shortly after that, they win the first overall draft pick and they start building a pretty
1: damn good team. Oh, that's so fucking sick. Man, I, I wish I had the power to do that. Like someone wrongs me and then they try to correct it. And I'm like, okay, you're no longer cursed now. Um, And then their life just gets better. And
0: Fucking crazy. Here's the thing. If Toronto had actually won a playoff series and the Stanley... Even just a playoff series, not even the Stanley Cup. If they had even just won in the playoffs after that, I would have said, yeah, this team is no longer cursed. It's official. But that yeah, didn't yeah. happen.
1: <laughs> you, no, no, no. <laughs> so clearly, <laughs> They're still doing pretty trash.
0: We need to look a little bit deeper. Let me tell you about, I think, a sports curse that I've never heard anyone talk about. I think this is a late late capitalism show exclusive sports
1: curse oh shit sound the alarm
0: so before we can talk about this curse we need to go back to 1885 my friend we're gonna be talking about the toronto baseball club in 1885 there was the canadian league just it's like a minor league affiliate for the majors uh There was a team called the Toronto Canucks that would leave the Canadian League along with Hamilton to join the International League. Uh, Just a little sports fun fact about that. The International League was actually the first league that Jackie Robinson played in. So before he broke the Major League color barrier, he actually played for the Montreal Expos. Really, really cool. That's sick.
1: I had no idea.
0: Yeah, it's awesome. It's so interesting. They were the affiliate for the Brooklyn Dodgers at the time. So there's a baseball stadium built May 22nd, 1886 uh, for the new look Toronto Baseball Club. They win their first game in front of 3,000 fans. They win the pennant the following year behind a 33-game winner. This is a pitcher, Edward Nicholas Cannonball Crane. What? <laughs> Man, we need
1: cool names again. What the right? fuck?
0: And not only was he the best pitcher on the team, he also led the team in hitting with an absurd 428 batting average.
1: Holy...
0: Like, league average nowadays is, like, 250. <laughs>
1: yeah, boy, you in the name.
0: Absolutely. Uh, fantastic. So, the Toronto Baseball Club would change owners and stadiums several times over the next 30 years. In the early 1920s, they would be purchased by a more steady kind of ownership conglomerate, and they would be renamed the Toronto Maple Leafs. Mm. In fact, they were the first Toronto Maple Leafs in the city of Toronto.
1: Oh, weird.
0: That's right. I know.
1: I had, I had no idea.
0: Not many people do. The hockey team at the time was called the Toronto St. Patrick's. Oh, okay. And in 1927, they would change their name to the Toronto Maple Leafs. Oh, no. So the baseball team predates the officially named hockey team by a year. They have yes. uh, Maple Leaf Stadium, which would be their home for the next 42 seasons. And they actually won the championship in their first year as the Toronto Maple Leafs. Uh, they were a AAA ball club, meaning they were essentially the last place a player would go before becoming a Major League Baseball player. So you have a farm system, A, AA, AAA, and then the Major League. Mm. In 1965, the Boston Red Sox became the parent club for the Toronto Maple Leafs baseball team. The Red Sox would install a new coach who would lead the team to -to back-to-back championships in 1965 and 1966. So they looked really, really good on the field, but they were losing a lot of money off it. In 1965, they lost $168,000. Ooh, that's a lot. That's a lot. 1965 money. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, So the team owner would write a personal check for $100,000 to cover the shortfall, which is very nice of them. Uh, and the rest of the balance was paid by other members of the conglomerate. Uh, now, it wasn't just the fact they were losing money, but Maple Leaf Stadium was also falling apart.
1: <laughs> like, oh, okay. yeah.
0: complete and total disrepair. It wasn't really set up to accommodate television baseball either. Uh, the team lost about $500,000 over its last four seasons in Toronto, thanks largely to this deteriorating stadium and a lack of interest. People just weren't coming to games anymore. Eventually, the baseball team, the Toronto Maple Leafs baseball team, would be put up for sale for an asking price of $60,000, which is like
1: that's a little. I feel like that's a little undervalued, but I guess if you're just losing money.
0: Yeah, to be fair, they've lost half a million dollars in five years.
1: Yeah, yeah. So
0: what becomes interesting is Maple Leaf Garden Limited, who owns the Toronto Maple Leafs, they naturally had first dibs to buy the baseball team of the same name. Mm-hmm. They would pass on this. They would say, nope, we don't want them. Partially because the stadium cost, but also because they wanted to get a Major League Baseball franchise. They don't want this AAA shit. Uh, eventually, mm. the team is bought by a bidder in Louisville, Kentucky, who then a few years, later, few years later sorry, sells them to Pawtucket, where they become the Pawtucket Red Sox, where they are still the farm team for the Boston Red Sox.
1: Oh, okay.
0: This is where things get interesting. Prior to 1967, which is when the team was sold, the toronto maple leaf hockey team had a 55.5 percent win rate against the boston bruins and won eight out of 10 playoff series between the two clubs okay since then the toronto leafs toronto maple leafs win rate against the bruins sits at 36.2 percent with boston winning all six playoff series matchups between the teams oh this is a trend that continued outside of hockey as well the blue jays have a 44 percent win record against the red sox The Raptors have a 41% record against the Boston Celtics. Oh, no. And, of course, the Boston Bruins, up until the last two years, were the last team to knock Toronto out of the playoffs, beating them twice in a row, both in traumatic fashion. Holy shit. So this one has never been named, but I call it the baseball bamboozle, (laughs) which is essentially, (laughs) to recap all these facts and stats, the Toronto Maple Leafs were originally a Triple A ball club they were sold and bought by a person who ended up selling that team to the Pawtucket Red Sox which is the farm team for the Boston Red Sox Boston since that day in 1967 has dominated Toronto sports multiple times winning record knocking them out of the playoffs just haunting this city
1: that's like you know how you know how municipalities have like sister cities yes this is like um this is like a villain city yeah. situation.
0: <laughs> Boston, it's like Boston and New York of course is the classic American rivalry. Yeah. Boston and Toronto is a really formidable second place. Like that's a more broad like eastern seaboard rivalry,
1: like those two cities. Yeah, are yeah, yeah. Yeah, and 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 Boston's winning.
0: And here's the thing. I would say the big knock against this as a potential curse is that the Toronto Blue Jays, the baseball team that would supplant the Maple Leafs and become the major baseball franchise in the city, actually has won two world titles since then. Mm -hmm. So you can't maybe pin this all on the baseball bamboozle, as I call it, just as how you can't blame the Leafs' struggles on the now-ended Hillman hex. Mm -hmm. But this is where the third option comes in. What if I told you there was a commonality between both the bamboozle and the Hillman Hex? I
1: would would think that Toronto is just perpetually cursed.
0: (laughs) And it's not just the city that's the commonality, but a specific individual.
1: Oh, let's hear it. Harold
0: Ballard was born July 30th, 1903 in Toronto, Ontario. For six years before the First World War... He and his family lived in Norristown, Pennsylvania. They moved back to Toronto. Uh, His father, Cindy Eustace Ballard, great name, uh, owned a sewing machine manufacturer, and it was one of the top manufacturers for skates in all of Canada. However, the family business would be bought by CCM, which is like the skate monopoly Mm -hmm. in the country. Oh, yeah. So his father lost his business. But trust me, these guys weren't hurting for money, as you're going to find out in just a moment. So in 1928, they have the Winter Olympics in St. Moritz, Switzerland. Harold Ballard was actually appointed the assistant manager of the varsity grads team that won the hockey gold medal. Back then, they didn't really have, you know, these tryouts. They would just take essentially the best university club and send them to the Olympics. Okay. Because that was their, like, that's when the Grey Cup and the Stanley Cup could be, like, played for between, like, universities, basically. Yeah. So Harold Ballard manager of this hockey team. He's really into both speed skating and hockey, mostly as like a a backer as opposed to a participant. He's not bad at hockey. He's just not, you know, good enough to be a professional. He's also an avid sailor and a longtime member of the National Yacht Club. So this is some real old money shit. Mm Mm-hmm. He would also be elected to the Yacht Club's executive committee in 1930, where he participated in the 133-mile Albany, New York, New York City Marathon, finishing second in his class. About a month later, Ballard and two of his friends from the club were hurled from the boat into Frigid Lake, Ontario. Ballard nearly died, and one of his friends did die. None of the three of them was wearing a life jacket. Oh, okay. So it's actually after this Yacht Club scare that he decides, yeah, I'm going to focus on hockey and dry land for the most part. And uh, he becomes the manager for the—and this is the team's name—Toronto National Sea Fleas. Ew.
1: Yeah, right? Wait, wait. (laughs) The Sea Fleas? The Sea Fleas. Why would you call yourself that? Why would anyone want—that's that? (laughs) not— I wanna I wanna you know what I, I do want a shirt that says Toronto National Sea Fleas though. I'd like to see their design. Yeah, yeah, that sounds kinda sick. <laughs> what is a sea flea? You know, I'm 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 warming up to the idea of calling your team the Sea Fleas.
0: It's an interesting name. Anyways, he would leave the Sea Fleas in nineteen thirty four to become the manager of the much more normal sounding West Toronto Nationals, which was an OHA. Oh. It's a junior team.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know what? There's not enough Seaflees in that name. Though. No. I wish, yeah, Toronto Western National Seaflees would work better.
0: There also weren't enough Leafs involved with the West, Nash, West Toronto Nationals, so Harold Ballard would use his family money to hire Toronto Maple Leaf captain Hap Day as coach, mm. which is a great, also 1930s name, uh, with their now former professional hockey player as the head coach. Uh, Ballard's team would start winning games. They actually won the Memorial Cup in 1935-1936, so that's Mm -hmm. the big junior championship. Uh, The following season, Hap Day and Harold Ballard worked together to run a senior team sponsored by Dominion Brewery, and uh, Ballard would take over uh, his father's other business interests in 1935. So he's starting to accumulate a lot of money and a lot of clout within the Toronto sports scene.
1: Mm Mm-hmm.
0: In fact, he is uh, recommended to the Toronto Maple Leafs organization and they say, oh, he should run the Toronto Marlboros, which is the senior and junior teams that feed into the Leafs. So essentially in charge of the farm team. Right. OK, they would do really well during Ballard's tenure. Helps to have a lot of money on your side, turns out.
1: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Uh,
0: they would lose in the 1950, 19, sorry, 1950 Allen Cup final. Or, sorry, they lost the game. Uh, they lost the game that Ballard ended up coaching, but they ended up winning the series and the championship. So now he's won titles with two teams. Pretty good record. Mm-hmm. In the early 1950s, he would hire uh, his longtime friend Stafford Smythe, who is the son of the Leafs owner, Con Smythe. Uh, Con Smythe is also the name of the trophy awarded to the playoff MVP. So this is a pretty big, like heavy hitter in the world of hockey that we're talking about here. So... Harold Ballard is now friends with the son of the owner of the Toronto Maple Leafs. He hires them onto his squad. They win the Memorial Cup again. Uh, And Harold Ballard forms the Harold E. Ballard Limited Holding Company, which he would later use to purchase shares in Maple Leaf Gardens Limited. So just a recap.
1: I hate it when people name things after themselves. Yeah, it's disgusting. Aren't you supposed to reserve that for other people?
0: As you're going to find out, Harold Ballard, massive egotist, lunatic, and that's not even the worst of what he's involved with
1: okay okay
0: so he enters the hockey world in 1930 mostly as a manager for smaller level teams works his way up takes over his father's company uh starts making money becomes friends with the son of the owner of the toronto maple leafs and uses that to kind of move himself into the organization where he embeds himself like a tick or a sea flea if you will
1: oh no (laughs) the the horrible reign of a sea flea that's right. Uh
0: so Ballard's a part of this big like ownership committee. Uh he moves his way up in the committee. Fun fact, the ownership committee for Maple Leaf's Garden was known mm. as the Silver 7 because all of them were very old.
1: Oh, okay. A bunch of so, geriatrics.
0: Oh, absolutely. So we get to 1961, uh Ballard became essentially he founded his own soccer league in eastern canada called the eastern canada professional soccer league which operated in toronto hamilton and montreal so he's just throwing his money around uh Mm -hmm. the only reason this is notable is that in 1962 he tried to introduce a hockey style penalty box to soccer but fifa was like you you literally cannot do this (laughs) like we will not allow we will not sanction your league like you will not be an official soccer league if you do this (laughs)
1: <laughs> That'd be awesome. I don't know. I, I, I like the idea.
0: He's got some interesting ideas.
1: FIFA's being a pussy.
0: That's, I mean, FIFA is famously terrible. It's yeah. hard to make Harold Ballard seem like the better option. But Yeah, FIFA boy's got ideas. Way. He certainly does. You're going to see a few of those in just a moment. Uh, eventually, Con Smythe puts the team up for sale. Harold Ballard ends up getting uh, the majority of the shares in the team, so he becomes essentially the... CEO and president of Maple Leaf Gardens Limited, which owns the Toronto Maple Leafs. Why am I telling you this? Well, because he takes charge in 1961. The team wins Stanley Cups in 1962, 63, 64, and 1967. Woo! After That's the 1967 big. Stanley Cup, Larry Hillman asks for his raise. It is Harold oh, no. Ballard who denies the
1: raise. Oh, no.
0: It is also Harold Ballard who decides to leave him open for expansion, meaning that other teams can pick him up. He didn't they didn't protect him, essentially. Right, right. Larry Hillman, as we've established, would go on to curse the team, saying they would never win another Stanley Cup until his debt is repaid. Something that took over 50 years for them to finally make right. Mm -hmm. Harold Ballard is also the one in 1967 who opted against purchasing the failing Toronto Maple Leafs baseball team. Oh, my God. Allowing them to be sold off to Louisville and then eventually Pawtucket. No way. This is bad. Yeah. I actually don't think this is even the crux of this major curse. To understand what I think has really afflicted the Toronto Maple Leafs, we need to go a bit further.
1: Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm along for the ride. I had no idea this would tie in like this. Harold Ballard.
0: I have essentially a list of his greatest hits before I talk about the real heavy stuff. So I I want to walk you through what he did when he was in charge.
1: Okay, let's hear it.
0: So incredibly frugal, very cheap, uh, very egotistical man. Here is the first thing that occurred during his tenure. So just after the advent of color television in Canada, the Maple Leafs installed a new lighting system in the arena. While it provided a clearer picture for fans, so the people in the stands... It caused a very sharp glare that distracted and blinded players on the ice.
1: Oh, what a bitch. That's a horrible move.
0: CBC was like, look, we need hockey to be successful. You can't do this. Yeah, yeah. So he's like, oh, you don't like it? Pay me. I'll upgrade it, but I need you to give me all the money you have to finish these upgrades. Of course, CBC's uh, Hockey Night in Canada president was like, no, that's ridiculous. So Harold Ballard, before the broadcast of a major hockey game... That's going to be seen by millions of people, grabs a fire axe and threatens to cut the TV cables into the arena unless the president of Hockey Night in Canada agrees to pay for the lighting system.
1: Uh, yeah.
0: Of course, the president relents, and the broadcast went on as scheduled, and the lights will be upgraded <laughs> later that season. Oh, no. <laughs> Ballard also spent 1967 and 68 negotiating lucrative deals to place advertising throughout the building which greatly increased the number of seats in the gardens. So this is like the beginning of those sponsored seats and like luxury boxes, you know?
1: Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: To make room for more seats, and I will say this is the coolest thing he did. Well, this and the next one. Ballard removed a large portrait of Queen Elizabeth II from the gardens. (laughs) Wait, what does that mean? Like all these Toronto venues, like most Canadian venues had a picture of the Queen, including like Legion halls. Like they all had a picture of the Queen because, you know, there's that weird special relationship. Uh-huh. When asked about why he removed the picture, Ballard replied, She doesn't pay me. I pay her. Besides, hey. what the hell position can a queen play?
1: Oh man, that, that's sick. That is awesome. I, I like that. So that's shortly a, that, that's a big W.
0: Shortly before he officially took over as you know the person in charge of the Maple Leaf Gardens Limited, uh, he still had a pretty prominent role in the organization, as we discussed, being on that board of directors. In 1965, the Beatles were scheduled to play a show at Maple Leaf Gardens. Harold Ballard sold tickets to two shows and told the Beatles manager Brian Epstein the band would have to play twice. Epstein was furious, but agreed. The Beatles performed on one of the hottest days of the summer, so Ballard ordered the start of each show delayed, had the thermostats in the arena turned up, and turned the water fountains off, and then up the price of uh, soft drinks at the concessions. What a psycho
1: so that's psycho shit
0: for him to do that to the beatles as well is insane.
1: oh my god and you know what he made a lot of fucking money yeah of course of course you turned it into a giant like sauna yeah
0: the fact he turned the thermostats up is probably the most egregious thing to me that's insane it's one thing to throttle concessions but to be like no make it hotter
1: yeah, like you know, classic put a little more salt on the popcorn to make it so people are thirstier. No, no, no. We're we're going to sweat these people out so they have to buy drinks. In
0: 1969, Harold Ballard and Stafford Smythe, the son of Con Smythe, were charged with tax evasion and were accused of using Maple Leaf Gardens Limited to pay for their personal expenses. Uh The chairman of the board uh, received support of the board of directors in an 8-7 vote to fire Smythe and Ballard. However, they didn't force Smythe and Ballard to sell their shares in the organization, so they removed them from their positions, but they still had controlling interests in Maple Leaf Gardens Limited. Mm, Okay. Ended up not being a good idea, as they had enough between the two of them to control over half of the company's shares. About a year later, they stage a proxy war. That's how this was phrased by the CBC, to regain control of the board. Ballard was reappointed executive vice president. Facing an untenable situation, uh, the current chairman resigned and sold his shares to Ballard and Stafford Smythe in 1971, just to essentially get out of there before things got worse. (laughs) Stafford Smythe would die six weeks later, leaving a 68-year-old Harold Ballard, with sole control of Maple Leaf Gardens, having over 60% the majority. Oh no! He then reinstalled himself as president and chairman of Maple mm-hmm. Leaf Gardens and made himself the official governor. His words of the Toronto Maple Leafs. <laughs>
1: he made it. He made a position. <laughs> yes.
0: And shortly after taking control of the Maple Leafs, Harold Ballard stood on trial for 49 counts of fraud, theft, and tax evasion involving oh, no. over $205,000. He was accused by the Crown Attorney of using funds from Maple Leaf Gardens Limited to pay for renovations to his home. Funds were also used to renovate his Midland cottage, to rent limousines for his daughter's wedding in 1967, and to buy motorcycles for his sons. <laughs> he also placed money belonging to the corporation into a private bank account that he controlled along with Stafford Smythe. He pleaded mm. not guilty to all charges. Uh. He would be sentenced to three consecutive three-year terms in Millhaven Prison.
1: Oh my God! Okay, was a would, local boy.
0: Not only that, he served some time in Kingston Penitentiary in the intake unit before heading to Millhaven. He said prison was like staying in a motel with color television, golf, and steak dinners. What? He was in Millhaven. And because he was in the minimum security wing, he basically just lived in a locked dorm. And he would just get, like, weekend passes, go play golf. He'd hang out with the correctional officers. In fact, he claimed to have photographs of himself drinking beer with the guards and wearing their uniforms.
1: Oh, my God. He was, he, he like, I guess a lot of white-collar criminals end up doing that, right? But, like, to be so blatant about it after the fact and be like, yeah, I have pictures.
0: Yeah, and he... Apparently he did like I don't know if they've ever been made public, but people have definitely said like, yeah, no, he had them in a little box.
1: Oh, my God.
0: He basically did the Goodfellas stuff, but on his own. And that's awesome. Yeah,
1: that's that's ballsy.
0: So he comes back just in time for the 1971 1972 season. Uh, This is an important one in hockey is the Western Hockey Association. WHA is starting up and this is actually really good for the players because now they have a bit of leverage. They can say either pay me or I'm going to the WHA. Mm-hmm. and of course harold ballard doesn't pay him so a lot of the leafs best players go to the wha right right including uh dave keon and bernie Parent, who would be a stanley cup winning goaltender for the philadelphia flyers just about a decade
1: later okay
0: so around the same time he came back harold ballard gets an order from nhl president john ziegler to have names sewn on the back of players' jerseys because mm-hmm. uh Well, they want to start selling the jerseys. This is the NHL. Harold Ballard thinks if people can see the name of the players on the jerseys, they won't be inclined to buy programs. So, you know, they'll be able to tell who's who without buying programs. Yeah. So he just refused to put these names on the back of the jerseys, and he got fined $2,000 a day until he eventually gave in. However, the letters on the back of the jerseys were the same color as the jerseys.
1: Oh, my God. He did the undercover cop car thing.
0: (laughs) Yes. You can't read the names.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's so shitty.
0: Yeah. Speaking of shitty, this one's not quite as funny. Uh, In 1979, he's a guest on Barbara Frum's CBC program, As It Happens. Uh, He's speaking over the telephone, and he implies that women are best in one position, on their back. When Barbara Frum attempts to ask him questions about this, he told her to keep quiet and stop interrupting him before hanging up.
1: Oh my God. What a fucking asshole.
0: The next night on her show, Barbara Frum reads a conciliatory letter to Ballard, forgiving him for his remarks, and signed it Your Favorite Broadcaster. So kudos to her.
1: <laughs> That's actually sick. <laughs> I like that. She's spicy.
0: Okay. She's always
1: been spicy.
0: Here's probably the dumbest one that is directly related to the team and their lack of success. So in 1977-78, Toronto makes the conference finals. They have a really good team, mostly because they have a really good coach, Roger Nielsen. Mm -hmm. Uh, The next season, they struggle a bit, not like worse in the league or anything, but he fires Harold, or sorry, he fires Roger Nielsen. Unfortunately, he couldn't find a replacement, so he rehires Roger Nielsen and asks him to wear a paper bag over his head. During games <laughs> What the fuck So that he couldn't be seen on the TV broadcast And they were literally, and this is true Going to bill him as Coach X
1: Wait, Coach X?
0: Yeah They weren't going to give so, him a name
1: That's so fucking sick That's like Mix- Mr. X from um, Resident Evil Yeah, Resident yeah. Evil 2 I would have loved to see
0: Roger Nielsen burst through a wall And just grab Harold Ballard's skull and crush it Yeah, yeah <laughs> So, this is all, like, fairly lighthearted, like, incompetent, and somewhat scandalous shit. Yeah. But the atmosphere is going to change a bit. And this is where there's a content warning, because we are going to talk about instances of sexual assault.
1: Okay, okay.
0: So, in the late 1970s, uh, Harold Ballard also has an apartment built in Maple Leaf Gardens. So, he has his own little living space inside the building now. Okay. Okay. I want you to keep that in mind as I discuss this story, which was originally published in McLean's magazine in 1997. So I'm going to be reading some excerpts from this article because it really paints a picture that I myself could not paint better. The disclosures of John McCarthy and Martin Cruz essentially created an unmitigated, unprecedented scandal in Maple Leaf Gardens, both the administration and the building. Okay. So McCarthy and Cruz are two young men who essentially are recruited to join the Maple Leaf Gardens, like staff. They're kind of working in an unofficial capacity, you know, mostly as like puck boys and stick boys, where you you you, you hang around the arena, you help with the equipment, you get to meet a few players, you get to hang
1: out. Hmm.
0: Unfortunately for them, two Maple Leaf Garden employees, Gordon Stuckless and John Paul Roby, would quote over the next ten years. <sighs> essentially commit routine sexual assault on these two young boys and other young boys who did not go on the record.
1: There seems to be a theme with that. Like, that, that seems to keep happening regardless of the sport.
0: Yes. Uh, they would take these two young men into empty offices and have anal and oral sex with them. They say it happened hundreds of times, and, quote, a lot of people working there knew about it.
1: Mm, yep. Yep, that adds up.
0: Uh, McCarthy would say that he came forward to McLean's because this case was, as you noted, far from unusual. The same tactics were used to lure dozens of the other young boys into having sex with Garden's employees, he says. Sometimes, he remembers, the starstruck kids even received invitations to the Maple Leafs dressing room where they were introduced to their heroes. For years, the victims kept the Garden's secret. Almost immediately after the arrests, police were inundated with calls from others who said they had too been abused at the venerable hockey shrine. Detective Dave Tredea of the Metropolitan Toronto Police said the abuse was, quote, common knowledge among the staff. So far, uh, Tredea added, there is no indication that senior management was aware of the problem, but McCarthy says that Harold Ballard, the garden's autocratic owner from 71 until his death in 1990, would often walk by as groups of kids sat watching TV together with the Maple Leaf Gardens employees. Oh, that's fucked up. He would also see them coming out of the team sauna naked. Oh... Uh... Even though the teens had no particular reason for being in the building, no one in charge asked any questions. And he never complained, he says, because these two men made him feel important. They made me feel like I was Harold Ballard's son. I could bring in friends anytime I wanted. Uh, There's also some pretty graphic descriptions of, quote, dozens of young boys lying naked on rugs, having sex with gardens employees. Jesus Christ. They Some speculate eyes-wide-shut shit. Yeah, and they're they're talking like hundreds of victims here and survivors. Mm-hmm. Toronto businessman Barry Bingham and his son Daryl were flooded with bad memories when they saw Stuckless being led into court in 1997. When Daryl Bingham was 13, uh, Gordon Stuckless was his hockey coach. On a team trip in 1987, Stuckless arranged to share a room with the boy and sexually assaulted him. Daryl told his parents and they immediately went to the police. In 1988, Stuckless pleaded guilty to assaulting the boy and received a short jail sentence. At the time of his arrest, he was on probation after serving 14 months for sexual assaults involving several other young boys, aged 12 to 13, in Toronto. So, he did this before he really started working. Like, this was known as he was working in the gardens, essentially. That he was a convicted pedophile. Right. So... When uh, Barry Bingham, the father of Daryl, who was assaulted by Stuckless, realizes that Stuckless is still working at Maple Leaf Gardens, he would write a letter to Donald Giffen, who was a former director of personnel at the gardens and became the president after Harold Ballard died in 1990. So Barry Bingham writes a letter to the new president of Maple Leaf Gardens, warns him that one of the employees is a convicted pedophile. Uh, He told them that they should fire him immediately. Mm -hmm. Bingham gets a letter back from Maple Leaf Gardens saying... Thank you for your correspondence. We will look into this issue. And that's the last he hears from them.
1: Wow, that's nice. That's real nice.
0: So he sent them a signed letter with descriptions of sexual abuse by one of their employees, sent it directly to the new president in charge of the organization, Mm -hmm. and they send him back a form letter. That's it. That's the only step they took to trying to address what was a routine and widespread sexual assault ring running out of Maple Leaf's gardens.
1: Yeah, first of all, that's absolutely disgusting. Uh, second of all, I feel like that is exactly the course of action that keeps happening.
0: Yeah, This it's infuriating that 30 years ago this kind of shit was going on. And assuredly, 30 years before that and 30 years before that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, a lot of the former Maple Leafs had... Obviously quite visceral reactions to this. Uh, Defenseman Ian Turnbull, who left the team in 1980, said that players were not aware of the problem, but he did note that Ballard was a penny pincher who would often give jobs to people willing to work for very little money without knowing anything about them. Red Kelly, who played for the Maple Leafs and coached the team in the 1970s, emphasized that problems arose around the gardens when Ballard took over as a uh, full-control owner in 1971. While the previous owners had run the place with military precision, he noted, under Ballard, it was as if a bunch of pirates had taken over, and that, it seems, may have created the atmosphere that led to a Canadian tragedy. Harold Ballard would die in April 1990, one day before an elimination game for the Toronto Maple Leafs. They, of course, lost that game. However, Harold Ballard's Handprints and footprints were put into the cement underneath Maple Leaf Gardens. So underneath center ice, there was Harold Ballard's handprints and footprints. What? Yep, that's right. He installed that in the arena himself. Now, Maple Leaf Gardens was demolished. It's a new building now. But Harold Ballard would be inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame in 1977. I believe that it is Harold Ballard and the indiscretions that he allowed to take place under his very clearly laissez-faire, yet also autocratic watch that is haunting this team. And my belief is that you need to take Harold Ballard out of the hockey hall of fame.
1: One hundred percent. And that can, will that will like paying the other guy, that will break this curse.
0: Yeah. You cannot allow this man who By all accounts was racist. He once was photographed and filmed on CBC for like some kind of fluff piece wearing a safari hunter outfit complete with the pith helmet. Oh, my
1: God. He sounds like a fucking loser.
0: Yes, he was. He was an evil piece of shit. Incompetent, arrogant, utterly detestable never met a deal he wouldn't make, never met a person he wouldn't screw over, lived in Maple Leaf Gardens as there were numerous, hundreds of accounts of sexual abuse going on right beneath beneath his nose. Mm -hmm. The fact that we haven't even really reassessed his legacy is shocking to me.
1: Yeah, this is the first I've heard of it. Not gonna lie. That being said, I'm also not necessarily super deep into the hockey scene, but this seems like it's a a huge deal. And
0: I, I was told by my uncle who lived in Toronto in the 1990s that at the time, like, this sex scandal was a huge deal. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of just fallen into the ether. It could be the culture that surrounds hockey because a lot of this stuff still goes on. In fact, one of the most famous... Examples of abuse at a minor league level involved Theron Flurry and his coach, uh, Graham James, who ended up getting charged in the early 2000s for just numerous accounts of sexual assault. But people don't talk about this. And this is like this is a national fucking disgrace. Mm -hmm. Throw it on the list of every other fucking national disgrace in this stupid fucking country.
1: Yeah, that people like commemorate. Yeah, absolutely. You know what I mean? Not just not just it being a disgrace, but something that's celebrated and 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 looked back upon fondly. So, that's that's insane to me.
0: I am declaring right now until the Toronto Maple Leafs remove Harold Ballard from the Hockey Hall of Fame, till the NHL takes that step, the Toronto Maple Leafs will never win a Stanley Cup.
1: Mm-hmm. And the Hockey Hall of Fame is in Toronto Is in Toronto, it's right down the street Yeah, so they got a lot of splaining to do
0: There are specters of one of the worst men in Toronto history Yeah, hanging that's around
1: and haunting actively a downfall of a man their city
0: who, after he took over, so he officially took over in 1971 The team didn't win fucking shit And still hasn't won fucking shit for 50 years since then In fact, this is the 50th anniversary of when he took over Mm. And for them to create and just fucking shit out one of the worst games they've ever played is, I think, <laughs> very fitting.
1: Yeah, yeah, it really, really goes to show the impact of this curse. So,
0: Chance, before we wrap up, what is there to say about Harold Ballard and the Toronto Maple Leafs that has not already been said?
1: Yeah. Um. One thing is he he almost won me over.
0: Yeah. There's some funny stuff in there.
1: Taking out the queen in order yeah. to get more seats? That's awesome. That's cool. <laughs>
0: I, I should also note that he was such a penny pincher around this time that you know how they have like championship banners that hang up in arenas? Mm-hmm. He actually sold... Originally, he used Toronto's Stanley Cup banners to catch paint when they repainted the arena. He used them no as like a No fucking sheet. Way. I am serious. And then eventually he would sell those old banners as well as the uh, broadcast booth that Famous broadcaster Foster Hewitt used to use. Mm-hmm. So he sold that off to create more space for private
1: boxes. Oh my God. This is like, this is extreme penny pinching. Like, you know, um, they have those shows called like Extreme Coupon or yeah. shit like that. <laughs> like, that's what this is, except Extreme Hockey Manager.
0: Extreme Hockey Owner, yeah.
1: Yeah, like that, that is nuts. But also, hockey owners in general have a horrible history with stuff like that. And like, mm-hmm. they, routinely have been horrible to their employees. Um,
0: the NHL so I think that, itself is like the most bankrupt sports league of them all as well. It should be noted.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I think you know, doing a deep dive into the horrible practices of these owners, like like most business owners do, um, I think is a good idea is to just keep in mind when you think about, you know, how many millions that hockey players are getting paid or whatever. Yeah. Just remember that the history of that is it it comes from them negotiating their wages.
0: And there's other owners we could cover. There's some very famously like monstrous Hockey owners, including one who is still operating, Eugene Melnick, who owns the Ottawa Senators.
1: Yes, yes. So
0: yes. we could potentially come back to this because the NHL is obviously conflated with Canada, despite the fact that the majority of the teams in the league are not Canadian. Mm-hmm. And now there's a growing number of non-Canadian players that are starting to dominate. But it's always interesting to see and kind of pick at these aspects of Canadian identity.
1: and see Yeah, something that people People hold so strongly to their heart but that's because you've been they you know they've sold their image to you that was that was their point right like they they they've marketed themselves to you and you bought it
0: and there's actually a really interesting article uh in the players tribune if we ever want to go back to hockey specifically looking at hockey through the culture it creates especially around you know non-white players there's a lot of material we could cover, including uh, the experience of Indigenous hockey players in the NHL, the experience of uh, Black hockey players, Asian hockey players in the NHL. There's a lot of stuff out there, and it is really, really harrowing.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, with with that, I think we should say our uh, uh, bid our fans adieu.
0: Adieu. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for listening guys to the first edition of the Jesse and Chance run late late capitalism show. Just as a reminder, yeah. this is not a permanent setup. Dean and Megan will rejoin us at some point and we might have the odd guest on here or there.
1: Oh but yeah, definitely.
0: For now, thank you so much for listening. Chance, thank you. This was wonderful.
1: This was wonderful, Jesse. I All like right. hearing your voice. Oh, I like All hearing right. your voice, buddy.
0: Okay. Bye-bye.
1: Bye.